following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're going to talk about what happened on the Emmaus Road. Last Sunday was Easter Sunday. We talked about the resurrection. We celebrated uh, the life of Jesus and the fact that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are offered salvation. His death has covered the penalty for our, for our sins, and his resurrection has shown us he has the power to do the thing that he has claimed. So Jesus rises in glory, and then he spends time with the people before he leaves. And one of the first stories we get, one of the first narratives happens on the road to Emmaus. And it's kind of interesting because of where it's placed sometimes where you read the gospel, you could think of it as happening later, but it actually happens right away after Jesus resurrects. So we're going to read the story. This is in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. And then we're going to comment about what we learn about Jesus and what we learn about real life in the process of looking at this story. So here we go. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing or reasoning together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Do note something. As the story unfolds, it's going to seem odd, perhaps, that these people didn't recognize Jesus, but um, just know that God kept them from recognizing Jesus. That's going to become important as we talk about this later this morning. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation which you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. And the word there is like gloomy and sullen and dark. I mean, not just a little bummed, but they were, they were down. And then one of them named Cleopas, and speculation is that he may have been Jesus' uncle, actually, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Don't know if you remember, but the last two weeks we talked a bit about how it wasn't unusual for the Jewish people at that time to have their hopes set in someone they believed was the Messiah, and they had been let down a number of times. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and didn't find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This word glory has to do with a weightiness or heaviness. I, and I'm trying to think of analogy for this, but somehow it's like in order for Jesus to really become weighty, uh, he needs to do this. He's got to go through this to enter into his glory. 
I, I don't have a better analogy. I've been struggling with this one all week, but somehow maybe it's just like there's someone you know that you give weight to what they say. They're, they're heavy in your life. You know they've gone through stuff. They have wisdom and experience, and when you're with them, you just, you have this sense that I need to pay attention to this person. I think this is what's going on here. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and become weighty in your lives? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's the Old Testament, all the scriptures. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us. It's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. And then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. We're going to come back to that as well, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So what do we learn about Jesus and what do we learn about life on this story of the road to Emmaus? I'm going to pull out three things this morning. I'm sure there's more, but a good sermon has three points. Number one, life is hard but Jesus joins us on the journey. So through Jesus, we see God enter the world, and he enters this world that he created, and it's a world that has grief and it has joy, and those two paths kind of cross constantly. So Jesus moves from his baptism by John the Baptist into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days. Jesus does miracles. Then people set traps for him and even try to kill him. Lazarus lives, Lazarus dies, Lazarus lives. Crowds love Jesus in one place, then he'll go to the next place and they'll try to throw him off a cliff. There's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, then there's the crucifixion, then there's the resurrection. And this tension, you see it all throughout the narratives in Scripture. And you see it with Jesus' followers. Apparently, they can expect to experience this same kind of inter section of grief and of joy. And so on the Emmaus Road, we meet a couple people overwhelmed with despair, and then it's followed by great joy. And it seems to me noteworthy that the resurrected Christ did not demonstrate the fullness of his glory by removing all the uncertainty and turmoil from life. In fact, in this narrative, he prolongs it for a bit. He demonstrates the fullness of his glory by redeeming these things. So you might have noticed that Jesus has not removed all the turmoil and the uncertainty from your life. The most obvious example right now is this coronavirus roller coaster. And whether that's turmoil and uncertainty about your health or about your job or what the next couple months is going to look like, not just here but around the world. Will life return back to any kind of normal? Has everything changed? Have we broken things we can't fix? There's turmoil. 
Marriages will overwhelm us one day with happiness and bury us the next day in frustration and anger. Jobs will fulfill us and jobs will crush us and sometimes that's the same day. Physical health comes and goes. There's seasons of life where you're free from particular temptations that that tend to haunt you and then there's seasons of life where they're just right next to you on your doorstep constantly. Or maybe you're like the people on the road to Emmaus, that there's times when God feels really near and then there's times where God just feels really distant and you have no idea why it seems that God has left. And those changes can sometimes be dramatic. So Jesus walks with us spiritually like he walked with them physically. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, he said, I'm sending you a comforter. And this comforter is with you, right? It's the way in which Jesus was going to be with us always, even till the ends of the earth. So he didn't remove his disciples from the world. He doesn't remove us yet. And there's one day that he will. Uh, But just like he did on the road to Maus, now Jesus joins us like he joined them. And he offers us redemption and restoration that point toward our ultimate reconciliation with him. So in the midst of this ebb and flow in life, the first encouragement I would give you from this story is look for him. He's probably walking much closer to you than you realize. And he'll show up, and we're going to kind of go through these a little bit more throughout the message. He shows up with his Holy Spirit, he shows up with his word, and he shows up with his people. So read the Bible, pray, put God's people on the road with you. Don't walk alone. One thing that stands out to me with this story is that there were some people walking together as they were hashing through their despair and their disillusionment. And I suspect that God will open our eyes when the time is right and will recognize that Jesus has been walking with us all along. Second point. Jesus is content to remain hidden at times, even though he's always near. So we do this with kids all the time, right? When kids are young, we're watching them in ways they don't understand. It's one of the delightful things about very small children is that you could spy on them constantly and be near, and they just don't know it. And then you get to catch them doing all kinds of things. Uh, Not my boys, of course, but other people's children. So they have no idea that we're listening or we're watching, but we are. And it's because we care right? Now, we want them to mature on their own, but we also, we know they can't mature without us. So there's this tension. We want to give space so that they can grow up and develop their relational and intellectual muscles, different, not literal muscles, but you know what I mean? But at the same time, we recognize that without someone who is wise in their life, that kind of maturity isn't going to happen. So if we try to think of, I'll call it an ideal family situation, because I get that families are messy. But I, I think in a healthy scenario, you have parents who are simultaneously trying to give space so that their children build into their own maturity, but also keeping them close and needing to guide and direct, because hopefully as parents, We're bringing some wisdom and some love and some stability and all these things that they need in order to help them grow well. 
So we watch, we wait, and in perfect ways and imperfect ways, got to make sure I say that right, we help and then we give distance and then we let them figure out and then we intervene and then we correct and then we challenge and then we encourage. And this analogy isn't going to be perfect because we're not present in a ways God is constantly present with us. But I, I hope you get the idea that in our imperfect way, we're trying to figure out how to balance being obvious and being hidden as we let them go so they can grow and hold them close so they can grow. And we're doing this at the same time. When Jacob was traveling, this is a story found in Genesis 28. He had a dream that he was in the presence of God and God speaks to him. And this was a place where Jacob did not expect this to happen. And what he says in Genesis 28, 11 is, surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. Now, here's your interesting historical tidbit. If historians are correct, the Emmaus Road revelation happened at the same place that Jacob dreamed he was visited by God. So at the same place, you see the same thing happen. Jesus was in this place, and we didn't know it. Now, God could have miraculously revealed himself to Jacob at any time. He could have also done this with the people on the road to Emmaus. He could have simply caught up with these guys, thrown off his hood, and be like, guys, it's me, and their eyes are open, and everybody celebrates. But instead, they spend the day walking, and Jesus takes a different approach. And I, I've often wondered about that, because it's, that unsettles me, that um, God could at any time just miraculously present himself in a way to me that would answer all my questions, but he doesn't, and he doesn't hear, and I think stories in the Bible are instructive for us. It's not to suggest God always works its way, but it's to give us a window into some ways that God does work so that we can learn. So I was thinking of times in my life this week where I, I really felt, I felt like there was distance, like I wondered where was God, why wasn't he showing up in ways that mattered to me. So God could have spared me two major breakdowns I had in my life, kind of emotional breakdowns. He could have spared me those seasons where I did not sense his nearness and his presence like I have in other times of my life. He, he could have thrown back his hood and said, Anthony, it's me. Uh, and he, he didn't in ways that I was hoping that he would. He could have healed my dad and saved me those years that followed, but he didn't. Um, he, he could have averted my heart attack, and then in my depression and anxiety that followed, he, he could have revealed um, the weightiness of his presence in ways that he didn't, or at least not in ways that I was hoping he would. He could take away my ADD now, I and mean, I can't take medication for it anymore since my heart attack that's been an ongoing frustration, um, and I would like to ex experience life without ADD medication differently than I do, but I don't. And he could remove the coronavirus with a snap of his fingers, but he hasn't. So does this mean he's absent in these cases? No, of course not. And I think this geographic location, this Emmaus Road, tying in with Jacob, uh, I think it is meant to remind us, surely God is in this place even if we don't know it. The issue was never that God was absent 
or that God had um, ceased to love me or that God was no longer who he was. That was never the issue. It just so happened that there are roads that we walk at times where God is content to walk with us in a more hidden fashion before he reveals himself to us more clearly. So I've been thinking about this this week, and I, it struck me that it's relatively easy to follow Jesus when everything's amazing. So when you're his disciples, and he's casting out demons, and he's raising the dead, all right, yeah, I, think about it. If you were following someone who was doing this, yeah, you're in, and you're, you're feeling pretty confident, pretty bold about uh, what this Jesus has to offer you, all right? But what about when you don't know where he is? Uh, what about the times and what we saw in the last couple of re- weeks and reading the stories? It seems like he's gone. Okay, do we abandon faith? Do we walk away from this Jesus because it's not unfolding like we expected? Or do we remain true? What happens when we can't sense his presence? And I've been wondering if God is perhaps even more honored when we continue to walk with him when we think we're walking alone. So to be clear, there's no doubt in my mind that in all of these situations, God's Holy Spirit is present and working just in ways we don't understand. Surely God is in his place, even if we don't know it. In all the situations that I gave you, I know that I was stabilized by the Holy Spirit in ways that I don't understand, and I know that the message of Scripture stabilized me tremendously. I was always so thankful of the background of the Bible that had been embedded in me from the time I was a child, because in those times, it kept taking me back to what does Scripture tell me? What do I know? How do I surrender what I feel to what I know to be true? And I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But I've been thinking lately about a third thing, what I would call a third provision of God's grace during those times when we feel like we're walking alone, and that is we walk with friends. I think it's much easier to keep going when you have a walking buddy. Many of you are noticing that right now in this time of quarantine. You just want to get together and walk with somebody because it makes a difference. And many times, we don't sense God is near, and one way to find strength, or I would even say one way to experience God's presence, is to experience the presence of God's people. That's why we stress relationship here at the church. And I I know it's hard now because of our geographic distance, but there's still ways to connect with people relationally. I, I think there's a reason that The people that Jesus meets are not walking the Emmaus Road alone. Now, I don't have a verse for this. So this is Anthony speaking, not the Bible. I mean, I hope it's a biblical principle, but I I don't have a verse for this. But I suspect that when we want to see God, more often than not, God meets that desire by sending us his people. I think that's why the Bible says over and over, we're ambassadors, which means in a very practical sense, we are God's presence here in the world. The Bible says we're representatives, um, icons, image bearers. We use this word over and over. We represent Jesus in this world. And I, I would just encourage you, don't give up pursuing these icons of God in the world. And like I said, I I know that in my life, 
And I know because Scripture tells me this as well. The Holy Spirit is always present even if we don't know it. God's Word is always true and foundational even if we're not feeling it in the moment ministered to us like it sometimes does. But I also believe we can't overlook this third part, that God reveals himself through his people. I have other Holy Spirit bearers around me walking close to me. I have other people who are temples in whom God indwells, and I pull them close. And when I say, God, where are you? I think God just often goes, I'm right here, and he moves his people closer to us. And then my third point will be split into two points. So I actually have four, but that's not as cozy as three. So this will be 3A and 3B. The broader point is that Jesus will reveal himself in time. And there's two key ways. And that's not to suggest there aren't more. There's just two that stayed out to me in this particular story. So the the disciples, they didn't recognize Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So they needed a revelation two ways. First of all, Jesus revealed his glory through his word. So once again, he could have made them just feel it, right? But what he did was he took them to the book. He took them to scripture. And he walked them through scripture. It's about him. We've talked before here in church, especially the last couple years, about the Old Testament. It's about Jesus. It's, It's the story of God culminating in the arrival of Jesus. And over and over, the Old Testament is prepping you for the arrival of Jesus. So Jesus does exactly that. He goes back into the Old Testament and preps them for the arrival of himself. The early church continued this tradition. They kept pointing to Jesus by pointing to the Bible. Old Testament quotations and allusions by the writers, for example, read the Gospel of Matthew, but then even when you go through the letters in the New Testament, over and over, specifically for their Jewish audience, it's pointing back to the scriptures in which they were raised. It's saying, you need to understand, it's always been pointing toward Jesus. When you see the apostles' sermon material in the book of Acts, And Paul, for example, would take a different approach when he was talking with Greeks because they didn't have the same background, but particularly with his Jewish audience over and over in the book of Acts, when there's a sermon, they start with the Old Testament, they work their way through the stuff in the Old Testament that says it's pointing toward Jesus, and then they keep going. Foundational. If you're walking the Christian road and you need to see Jesus more clearly than you are, start with Scripture. It's the foundational starting point. And then the second thing is that Jesus revealed his glory through his suffering. In fact, Jesus tells them, wasn't it necessary the Messiah suffer to reveal his glory? And then he's revealed in the breaking of the bread. Go back to the Last Supper when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled out for you. So on this Emmaus road, post-resurrection, Jesus says, you need to understand, the Messiah needed to suffer to reveal his glory and then waits to open their eyes until he does the action that commemorates the broken, bleeding Savior and the suffering of Savior, and then their eyes were opened. Uh, I'm going to say it this way, and I think it's probably a lot more nuanced than this, but it's rhyming words, so it might be easy to remember. Jesus was shown through the Bible as they were walking but that Jesus was known to them by the breaking of the bread. And I I think that's meant to say his suffering reveals his glory. Do you want to know Jesus? 
walks them through scripture. Okay, do you, do you see what you're being told? And then when he reveals himself, he reveals the suffering Savior. I was just thinking this week, I don't know how many of you listened to a singer named Michael Card back in the day. He might still be doing stuff, I don't know. He had a great song called Known by the Scars. Uh, if you go to the church website, I've posted notes already for the sermon. The video is at the end. It's a fantastic song about Jesus being known because of his suffering and known by the scars that resulted from it. And so something that strikes me is that Jesus wants us to share in his glory. And so how does this happen? I think it probably happens through our suffering. Here's Romans 8, verses 17 through 18. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So there's all kinds of suffering. We'll never pray in the garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood. But we'll experience our own kind of gardens, our dark nights of the soul, where we see death or what kind of feels like death coming. And we'll pray for our cup to pass. I I know I do. Jesus did. Feels like a good model. But we'll also pray for God's will to be done. And in our suffering, the glory of God that revealed in us is heavy. To go back to my imagery from before. So once again, you ever been around someone who's suffered? And in their suffering, God brought out a maturity, a weightiness, a profound sense of wisdom and godly transformation. That, I think, is the glory that's revealed in us. It's the glory of a faithfully transforming God who corrals all things into the service of transforming us into the image of Jesus. But that's actually not the suffering that's being talked about in this passage. I mean, I I think... I think God uses suffering in that way for us to participate in the weightiness aspect of glory. But there's, there's a suffering that I think Paul is being more specific about in the context of Roman 8. And this is specifically suffering for the cause of Christ. So if mere suffering ushers in God's glory, imagine what happens when we suffer for the sake of our communion with Christ. Now, In some places around the world, this is a very real, physical, torturous kind of suffering. Here in the United States, we're not experiencing that. But it doesn't mean we are not called to lay down our lives in a way that's appropriate to our situation. And in the laying down of our lives, the Bible uses the imagery of there's an altar. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. We crawl up. We, in essence, die. Paul said, I die daily. We, we keep going through this process. So let me give a couple examples of what it can look like when we live in a place. I mean, this can look like this everywhere. But we live in a place that's not bringing us physical torture and physical suffering. But we live in a culture that offers us plenty of opportunity to suffer for Christ in a different way. So Jesus commands us to be pure. And we struggle to remain pure in our thoughts and actions. Listen, If you've struggled with sexual temptation, and if you're within the sound of my voice virtually here, it's very likely you have. Uh, Saying no to sexual temptation and sexual opportunity can be 
epic. But if I want to share in the glory of Christ's purity, I have to be willing to suffer the hardship of sexual restraint. And especially if you've ever been addicted to something of a sexual nature, you know the suffering that goes with saying no to that path toward death and saying yes to this path toward life. But it's also how God's glory is revealed, not only in our transformation, but as we reach a new place of purity of action and thought and intent, oh, there's a foretaste of, I think, eternal glory as we begin to experience freedom and seeing the world a different way. But you have to suffer if you're going to experience that glory. Jesus commands us to love people. And let's be honest, we suffer when we take on the burden of relationship with others. Um, can I just say, um, you're a burden to me at times. I'm a burden to you, hopefully just at times. When we love each other and we move close to people and we engage in relationship, we will suffer. But if I want to share in the glory of true Christ-like love, both giving and receiving, I have to be prepared to be deeply wounded and still come back for more. I have to be prepared to suffer. Now, uh, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting there are never times we should walk away and create distance because abuse is a thing. Um, that is a separate topic. In fact, it would be a good one to talk about on Message Plus if you're able to join us in that kind of thing. Even the disciples at times shook the dust off their feet. And even though that's about evangelism, there was times when I believe it is good and right to create separation. But I'm talking about the normal course of life in, in kind of some ac acceptable boundaries of this is just people who are hard to get along with. In that kind of fallen world, love demands sacrifice. We will be broken and spilled out for those we love. That is just the reality of it. But if we want to share in God's glory, we must share in the suffering of taking up our cross and following Christ. You don't get resurrection without crucifixion. Jesus wants us to live lives of self-sacrifice, excuse me, of generosity, of patience, and we can suffer as everything within us wants to be selfish and be greedy and impatient. But if we want to share in the glory of Christ, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and share in the fellowship of his suffering. You might suffer as you take a stand for the truth of Scripture. And because you love Christ so much, you just won't compromise on the truth. Uh, you're sharing in the glory of Christ if you suffer for that. Um, that's different, by the way, than being an obnoxious standard for truth. <laughs> Sometimes you might suffer because you're a jerk. That's a different category. But as we are seeking to speak truth with grace uh, and represent Christ in the world, and we must stand on things that Jesus says, you must stand for these things. If we suffer for that, okay we will begin to participate in the glory that Christ offers us. So I think we can all agree the world needs to see the glory of Christ. It was seen in the suffering of Jesus on the cross. 
And today, I suspect it will often be seen as the people of God pay a price for the cause of Christ as well. And, and once again, that can include the public stance, but I actually think it probably begins in our homes, at our workplace, with our friends, in our church community, as we take up a cross and take these fallen, broken, sinful parts of ourselves and surrender them to Christ. We place them on the altar and we suffer in that sense so we can participate in the glory that Christ offers with a redeemed and a renewed and a transformed life. Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's just a means that we've got to get over ourselves if we think we're all that. We're not jars of gold. We're jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Do this in remembrance of me. I think the world sees his glory when they see our brokenness on behalf of Christ as well. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India for 55 years. At one time she wrote, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, have you no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear you described as mighty in the land. I hear them hail you as a rising star, but have you no scar? Have you no wound? As the master is, so shall the servant be. Pierced are the feet that follow me. Yours are whole. Can you have followed far if you have no wound and no scar? So we share in God's glory when God's glory fills us. And that happens when we participate first in his suffering. And then we display God's glory when it leaks through the cracks. This jars of clay crack pretty easily. We display, display God's glory as it leaks through the cracks as our lives are broken on his behalf and for his glory. But we don't lose heart because we realize, 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.